so I have good news and I have bad news. What do you want first? Should we start with the bad news, get it out of the way? Saturday night, we spring ahead. Yep. We lose an hour. So set your clocks forward. <laughs> Every spring, we go through this pain. That's the bad news. The good news is he never sleeps. He never slumbers, our Lord. So the time change isn't going to affect him at all. And that's good news. We are in the book of Numbers, hashtag in the wilderness. So we continue on. Yeva was asking me earlier this week, how do you continue on? You know, with what we shared and talked about on Sunday and some truly exciting and just amazing. God's word is absolutely amazing. And she was saying, I just want to stay right in this place. I just want to sit in this and chew on it and think about it and, and you know, let it simmer, and, and I'm like, I, I, we have to go on. See, every, every page is God's word. And so he meets us in chapters 3 and 4, just like he met us in chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3 of the book of Numbers, and I, I want to pray once again, Father, would you bless the teaching of your word. And I ask, Lord, I call upon you to cause your word, as you said in Isaiah 55, like the rain and snow which goes forth from heaven is not return without watering the earth, causing seed for the sower. And, and Father, I, I ask that your word would not return to you empty without accomplishing that which for you, the matter for which you sent it. I pray that it would go out from this place. I pray, Father, it would go out in our hearts. I pray it would go out Father, on the live stream, I pray that your word would continue to go out in ways that we cannot even ask or imagine. And not for us, but because, Father, your word is life. To whom else can we go? Father, would you teach us tonight? And I pray that the word of life would fill and encourage and strengthen and convict us in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abahu, and Eleazar, and Itamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abahu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Itamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father, Aaron. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit, so let me give you the background. Let me remind you that Aaron and Moses were sons of a man by the name of Amram. And Amram, their father, Aaron, was the firstborn. Amram's firstborn son, Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, gives us the birth order, Aaron first, and then Moses, God always going and taking that secondborn and elevating him in, in significance, which is interesting because I'm a secondborn, and, and of course we know that's how it worked in my family. Aaron and Moses, sons of Amram, and then Aaron and his sons, they begin the high priestly line of Israel. Moses was unique. So we don't even hear his sons listed here. Interesting, Aaron and his sons, yes, but not Moses' sons. 
First Chronicles chapter 23, verse 14 says, As for Moses, the man of God, his sons were named among the tribe of Levi. Interesting. So, in other words, the sons of Moses are named as Levites, not as priests. Wait, there's, there's a difference? Yes, there is. Priests and Levites are two unique classes within a class, if you will. I'll explain that in just a minute. But first, we see here at the beginning of Numbers chapter 4, Aaron's four sons, Nadab, which means generous, or perhaps generously given. The birth of the firstborn and mom and dad said, oh, this is so generous of the Lord, Nadab. And then the secondborn, Abihu, he is my father. You get almost a picture of Aaron looking down at, little, at the little baby born, and the, the baby looks up at him with adoring childlike eyes, and he says, ah, he's looking at me. He's saying, Abahu, he is my father. And then the thirdborn, you know, you start to get down the line, and, and the thirdborn, that, that's, that's good too. We already have two, but now we have a third. His name is Eleazar. God has helped. He's helped bring a third into the world. I've said after you have three kids, you could have 100 kids. It really doesn't make any difference at home. Pretty much the same thing. And so along comes the fourthborn, and while you have generously given, and he is my father, and God has helped, you get Itamar, which just means islands of the date palm. Got to call him something, right? <laughs> but while Eleazar and Itamar will carry on the ministry, you all know, you recall, Nadab and Abihu have a sad epitaph. That is, as verse 4 tells us, they died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Strange fire. And we talked about this. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's interesting. The chapter begins with this somewhat recent painful memory. As the Lord is about to speak now to the sons of Aaron and to the Levites, to the priests and the Levites, he begins with a reminder of Nadab and Abihu lighting strange fire and immediately being fired themselves. Illegitimate fire, that, that word strange, illegitimate, unauthorized, loathsome, inappropriate. The rabbis teach they were drunk, and there's good evidence of that in Leviticus chapter 10 where the story unfolded. But stop and think about this just for a moment. As we head into this, again, the Lord is going to be speaking in these two chapters directly to the Aaronite priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. And as he's talking to them, before we get there, why would two men on the day of their royal high priestly ordination get drunk and burn out? Why would they do such a thing? And I believe it was a missed call. A missed call. That is, they neither understood nor comprehended their priestly calling. They didn't get it. They didn't know what it was about, what it was truly for. And because they didn't understand, they ended up burning out. Why does anyone crash and burn in ministry or service to God? I'm going to use the word ministry a lot tonight. Please don't assign it to the quote-unquote professionals. Because every one who comes to Jesus Christ is called to ministry. Ministry is just another word for service. 
And it's the service that we render to each other in the church and in this world as witnesses of Jesus Christ. You are all, we are all ministers, a royal priesthood as we've talked about through Leviticus of Jesus. And so when we talk ministry, this is not what Pastor Les does or what Pastor Rick does. This is what we do as children of God through Jesus. So why does anyone in ministry get burned out? Why does anyone in ministry quit? You've known them. You've seen them. People who seem so sincere and, and put together and godly and faithful until they just flame out. Why does it happen? It's a missed call. Or again, a misunderstood calling. And there's way too much of that. Brothers and sisters, and I'm not saying this of you or of me personally right here tonight, but there are so many people in the church that misunderstand their calling. Some don't even know that they are called. Some you could ask and they could say, I don't, I don't know that I've ever been called. And I'd say, then you missed your call. Or you misunderstand it. Of all the Levites in history, and there have been many, and there were many who knew their call and followed their call and obeyed the call of God on their lives, but one stands out, in my mind, as having heard better than anyone else, Jesus accepted. Of course, he wasn't a Levite anyway. So specifically among the Levites, there was one who's a stand-up guy who understood, who got the calling and his name was John. If you want to keep your finger here for a moment, jump over to the Gospel of John, that is of John the Apostle, chapter 1, and take a look at John the Baptist, who actually wasn't a Baptist, but he did baptize. So there you go. He just, you know, wasn't his denomination. You know, there wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian. It's just John the Baptist because he baptized people. John chapter 1 and follow this through with me. Consider this. Picking up in verse 14. John 1.14. Which says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Of course, Jesus. Well, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law, John the Apostle now writes, was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then John the Apostle says, this is the testimony of John, speaking again of the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, you remember, John's a Levite by birth. His dad, Zechariah, was in the temple praying at the time he was told he was going to have a son named John. You can read about that in Luke chapter 1. So John's, he's a Levite, but he's not at the temple, and he's not serving in the Levitical priesthood. He's out in the desert, and in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people, and he's preaching the coming Messiah. And he says, I'm not the Christ. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Speaking of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet, one like me, who will come 
from Israel. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They then said to him, well, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They didn't understand that the Christ and the prophet were one and the same. And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing, a place that's called Bet-Abara, house of the passage. By the way, that's where we baptize when we go to Israel. That's where John was baptizing. That's where Jesus would take over doing baptisms. I, I point this out to you for a couple of reasons. Number one, to recognize that John the Baptist, as a Levite, knew his calling. He knew his calling. What was that calling? He would later say of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. He knew his calling. He understood something that oftentimes we in the church forget or don't remember or don't realize, and that is it's not about us. Our calling is about Jesus, and our calling is to minister to and to serve one another. And the less I make it about me, the happier I am. The more I make it about me, the more miserable I tend to be. We have a calling, a high heavenly calling that pulls us literally out of ourselves to name Jesus as the one who increases even as we in our lives decrease. Now, I start that because we're in the packing and preparation stage still. First 10 chapters of, of Numbers, of Bamidbar in the wilderness. Israel is in that preparation mode and the Lord now turns his attention completely to priests and Levites and that's the second reason I took you to John chapter 1. Did you notice that they sent out, the Pharisees sent priests and Levites because, because there's a difference that all the Aaronite priests sons of Aaron of the Aaronic priesthood or the Aaronite priesthood they were all Levites but not all the Levites were priests in fact, if you were not of the line of Aaron, but you were of the tribe of Levi, you were a member of that priestly ministry, but you were not an Aaronite priest. So that's where the distinction lies. When you see the phrase used in the Bible, priests and Levites, you're talking about Aaronite priests and Levite priests as two groups within the larger picture. And you need to know that going into where we are heading tonight. The majority of the Levites were not Aaronite priests. Now, Jesus is the one exception to all of this because he was neither Levite nor Aaronite, but yet the Hebrew writer, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So make that distinction in callings between the Aaronite priests and the Levites. Picking up in verse 5, as we launch into now, he's talking to, he's talking about Aaron and, and his sons. But in verse 5, he says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. 
They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting or in front of the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. Verses 6 through 8 are in a nutshell the priestly calling of the Levites. That's just kind of a a snapshot. We'll get more of that in chapter 4. More is laid out. But in verse 9 it continues, You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But, note this, the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Keep that in mind. So what this is saying is that the sons of Aaron are called to serve the Lord and his people in the tabernacle. That is through the offerings at the altar and then prayer and and, and tending the lamp and the bread and the altar of incense in the inside in the holy place, inside the tabernacle and later in the temple. That was the role of the Aaronite priesthood. The Levitical priesthood were called to serve the ones who serve. So the rest of the Levites would serve to support the ministry of the Aaronite priesthood. They came alongside them. But understand that their jobs, the Levitical jobs, though quite a bit more menial, were no less important, no less significant. So it is in the church that there are those that we, that we see with un- upfront jobs, real visible ministries, But those visible ministries could not continue without the, can I call it invisible ministries, the the behind-the-scenes work, the quiet work that's being done. All of these are different roles of ministry in the church and none less significant than the others because without the Levites, the priests couldn't do their job. If you didn't have the Levites doing what is required of them in these two chapters, the priests would be standing there wondering what to do with themselves. I have no idea how to run the camera and the sound equipment. You at home would not be getting this teaching if not for the guys upstairs taking care of that. Thank you, bros. I don't know how to do that. That's not my job. My job is to teach. But without the help of those around me, I'd be sitting here teaching in the middle of a field with nobody. We do this together. Now, Watch this. Again, verse 10. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. David learned that, didn't he? Remember the story, 2 Samuel chapter 6, when poor Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant, which was placed on a brand new ox cart, foolishly, because the Ark was always to be carried put the poles in the side and it was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. David had it put on on a cart and they're taking it up to Jerusalem and, and Uzzah, whose name ironically means strength, reaches out to grab the ark because it kind of jostles a bit, doesn't want it to fall off, touches it and instantly falls dead. David is furious. Not with the Lord, but with the situation. This was supposed to be a glorious day and it all fell apart as Uzzah, the strong man, dies. And David's like, what is up? And he realizes the humility with which these things must be approached and the appropriateness and the legality of the law and what God required. You don't come near or you're put to death. Uzzah was a layman. Uzzah was not a priest. 
Uzzah was not of the line of Aaron. He was just there to steady the cart. And therefore, he died. Why is this mentioned here, the lame and stranger? Which all, all the, it was also mentioned in chapter 1, verse 51. The same thing, that the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Why is that talked about right here? I want you to note this. He's talking to the priests and the Levites. And as he talks to them, he explains that the Levites are to serve the priests, that they come alongside to serve the priests. And in verse 7, note this, they shall perform the duties. They shall perform the duties. That phrase is very significant in the Hebrew because it tells us something of what those duties were, other than what we have described here. Perform is shomru. Duties is mishmart. Shomru mishmart also can translate, they shall keep watch. That is, they shall keep a guard. This speaks of a guard duty. And what we understand is that in addition to their other duties that are all very well laid out in chapter 4, the Levites were not only workers, they were sentries. They, they were watchmen. They kept a guard on the outside of the tabernacle while the Aaronite priests were to guard and minister on the inside of the tabernacle. Now think about this. So they're watchmen around the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp. I can understand making someone watchmen on the outskirts of the camp, you know, to keep an eye on things. But this was in the center of the camp. Not to mention the fact that the Shekinah glory of God was residing there. So like someone's going to really be able to be a threat, right? And yet they're called to be watchmen all the way around the tabernacle, what were they to keep watch against? Well, it wasn't foreign invaders. They were to keep watch, my friends, against the layman who might accidentally or curiously breach the outer walls and die. They were, we might even say, insulation <laughs> between the people of Israel and the inner court of the tabernacle. It's part of the reason why Levi was all the way around in their encampment around the tabernacle. I was thinking about this, and in the church, you know what? As, as priests, as ministers of Jesus, we have some things to guard, don't we? Paul said to the elders of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then Paul says this, for I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, we have security. Literally, that walk the grounds. We didn't used to. Back in the barn days, we didn't have security. It was come and go, you know. There were nobody, no men in vests keeping an eye on things. We have that now, and, and part of that is the culture we live in, some of the things that have happened in churches around our nation that are tragic. So we have guys that are serving guard duty around this tabernacle, as it were, around this tent. Sunday, we had an interloper. I don't know if you heard about this. One of our young men was outside walking, and he, and he saw someone up in the woods behind the church here. Kind of squatted down over there and and he said, hey, hey, can I help you? And the guy took off running. That's never a good sign. And so he, you know, radioed in and all the, you know, 
I, I think I actually heard it, John. I think I heard something like, swarm! You know, and the guys were running around trying to find him. And they searched the woods, and they couldn't really find anyone. And then someone saw him, I guess, a second time, and he ran again. Interesting. I'm thinking probably harmless. But as I thought about that this week, we have guys that are keeping watch, but the reality is there is a greater threat when it rises up from within the camp. The danger within the camp itself. In fact, Paul continues speaking to the elders of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 30, and says, From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So what are we to do? Keep guard. We keep watch. How so? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called the knowledge. Oh, there's all kinds of knowledge out there today. There's all kinds of, of teaching, all kinds of ideas and philosophies of men. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you, which is the word of God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter said, Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Keep guard. See, we have ministry that we do, works that we fulfill, and we have a guard to keep, and that is to guard the word of God, to stand by and on the word of truth. Now, a good Levite knew his calling, understood he was called to be counted among those who would stand guard, part of the deal. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 says, to this end we pray for you also always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. So as we continue, think about your calling. Verse 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. Interesting. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, from man to beast, they shall be mine, I and the Lord. What does this mean? Well, God's going to explain that further on into the chapter. Verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the sons of Levi by their father's household, by their families, every male, from a month old and upward, you shall number. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord, just as he had been commanded. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Do you remember what we talked about last Wednesday night? I reiterated it on Sunday morning. Don't number the priests. We already saw that. In chapter 1, the Lord said, in getting, getting the census of Israel, don't number the priests. You number all the rest of the tribes of Israel, but not Levi, do not number them. All of a sudden now, looks like we're into a census. 
And we actually are. There are two census takings before us tonight. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, two censuses, or as Dean liked to put it, two sensei. I was going with sensei, but whatever. Two censuses, one in chapter 3, one in chapter 4, both for different reasons. Understand, they're different than the census that was given in chapter 1. In chapter 3, there's a census for those of Levi who are a month old and upward, And then in chapter 4, it's a different census for all those who are the age of 30 to 50, right in that age age range. Here's the thing. The Levites were not to be numbered for war. The first census that we already saw was a military census for fighting. These, chapter 3, is a census for mediation, and chapter 4 is a census for ministry. Note that, I'll explain, but chapter 3 is for mediation, chapter 4 is for ministry. And it's the same still with the church. Don't number the priests for war. Number us for ministry. And at some level for mediation, but hold that thought. Didn't Paul say we should fight? Aren't we supposed to fight the good fight? Absolutely, but don't forget our fight is different. We don't fight like the world fights. In fact, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a different warfare. Our warfare is the stuff of the sword of the word of God. It's the stuff of prayer. Prayer in the ministry of the word, speaking the truth in love, that's, that's our warfare. We engage with compassion. We fight on the battlefield with love. We stand for righteousness. Our weapons are very different. And the question for you, for me tonight is, Are you numbered among those who fight? Or are you numbered among those who serve? Are you numbered as a priest? Or are you numbered as one who goes to war? Verse 17 says, These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohat, and Merari. Merari, not Ferrari, that, that comes later, that's a different guy. Merari. Genesis chapter 46, verse 8, tells us these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went down to Egypt. Genesis 46, 11 says the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohat, and Merari. So understand, these guys are named here in verse 17, would be 400 years old if they were still living. And they're not. But these sons, Gershon, Kohat, and Merari, were part of the group of 70 that went down to Egypt 400 years earlier. Now what we're talking about is the numbering of clans, these three clans within the umbrella of Levi. Gershon, Kohat, and Merari. Verse 18. These are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shimei. And the sons of Kohat by their families, Amram, Aaron and Moses' dad, right? And Ishar, 
Hebron and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their families, Mahli and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites according to their father's households. Of Gershon was the family of the Libnites and the family of the Shimeites, and they were the family, these were the families of the Gershonites, and their numbered men in the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, even their numbered men, were 7,500. Okay, so 7,500 Gershonites within the larger tribe of Levi from a month old and up. So that's all the guys. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. And the leader of the father's households of the Gershonites was Eliasap, the son of Lael. Now the duties of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle and the tent, its covering, and the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the doorway of the court, which is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords, according to all the service concerning them. So they had specific duties given to them, which we'll look back at in just a moment. And that's the Gershonites, 7,500 of them numbered, and they would camp on the west side then of the tabernacle. And then we come to the Kohathites, verse 27. Of Kohath was the family of Amramites, and the family of the Israelites, and the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzielites. These were all the families of the Kohathites. In the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 performing the duties of the sanctuary. By the way, there may be a problem with that number, but I'll tell you about that in just a second. The families of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the southward side of the tabernacle, and the leader of the father's households of the Kohathite families were Elzaphan, the son of Uziel. Now their duties involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they minister, and the screen, and all the service concerning them, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was chief of the leaders of Levi and had oversight of those who performed the duties of the sanctuary. So note that Eliezer would oversee the Kohathites and the tabernacle itself as a son of Aaron. Okay? So recognize again, we've got 8,600 from the Kohathites, 7,500 from the Gershonites. The Gershonites were on the west side. The Kohathites were on the south side of the tabernacle. And then verse 33, of Merari was the family of the Malites and the family of the Mushites, and they were the families, these were the families of Merari. Their numbered men, and the numbering of every male from a month old and upward were 6,200, verse 34. Verse 35, the leaders of their father's household of the families of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. They were to camp on the northward side of the tabernacle, now the appointed duties of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, all its equipment, and the service concerning them. And the pillars around the court with their sockets and their pegs and their cords. Don't you feel just devotionally moved right now as you read these? Stay with me. Now all of these, these were to camp, by the way, before the tabernacle eastward, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, Moses and Aaron and his sons performing the duties of the sanctuary for the obligation of the sons of Israel, but the layman coming near was to be put to death. There it is again. All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Aaron and Moses, or whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families, every male from a month old and upward, were 22,000. So 22,000 Levites 
here are, are counted to serve. And these are all service ministries that were just described. None of it has to do with offering incense and prayer, keeping the lampstand lit, keeping the fresh bread on the table of showbread. None of this had anything to do with offering the blood sacrifices at the altar. It didn't have anything to do with, you know, Yom Kippur, that day of atonement, going in before the Ark of the Covenant. That was all for the Aaronite priesthood. But the Levites kept the machine going, if I can put it that way. The Levites were the worker bees to make sure everything in the tabernacle was where it needed to be, functioned the way it was supposed to be functioning, and they would take it out when it was time to go, and we'll see that. But remember, here they are, camped all around, all four sides of the tabernacle, even as the sons of Israel would fan out from the tabernacle in all four directions, as we've noted, in the shape of a cross. So immediately around the tabernacle are all the Levites, because, and remember this, servants are always nearest to the heart of God. Servants are always nearest. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, he said, you know, verse 25, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slaves. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So interesting. It says that in verse 38, these servants close to the heart of God, the Aaronites, that is Moses, Aaron, and his sons, they camped before the tabernacle eastward. Eastward, the Bible even says, I love it, toward the sunrise. That is so significant. Malachi chapter four, verse two says, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you Bible students know the eastern sunrise is the location of the return of Christ the Son. He comes from the way of the east. Ezekiel 43, verse one he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 14, 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, to the east. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Note that it is both speed and direction. He comes with lightning speed when he returns. And he comes directionally from the east. Now, this Levitical census is a census, as I said before, of mediation. But before I get there, I want to show you something that is interesting, and you might just want to take note of this, and there may even be a little something in your Bible. If you have a, a study Bible or something, it may already say this in your notes. But we look at these numbers, 7,500 Gershonites, 8,600 Kohatites, and 6,200 Merarites. And at the end of it all, verse 39 says, they numbered 22,000. The problem is if you do the math, it doesn't come out to 22,000. 
it comes out to 22,300. We have a 300 person problem here. And the only way we can make this work, there, there are two ideas behind this. One is that 22,000 was just rounding down. The context doesn't really allow for that. The other possibility is that there actually is a scribal error. Now, I can tell you all this. After teaching through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, this is the first time I have ever found anything that I could acquiesce to being perhaps possibly a scribal error. Our older testaments are based on the Masoretic text, which goes back to the 10th century. We have found on occasion, like with the Dead Sea Scrolls, misspellings. It's rare, but it does at times happen. And in this, we think that's what's going on because if you look at verse 28, it says that of the Kohathites, there's 8,600. The number six, the 600 in Hebrew would be, the, would be spelled out in the Hebrew word shesh, which is just two S's, two letter shens, Side by side, Shesh would speak of 8,600, the 600. But the number for 300 is Shesh Lamed Shesh. So SLS. And we think the L perhaps got dropped. Because if you have Shalosh, which is 8,300, then the number works. I asked the staff today, I said, what do you think about that? possibility of a scribal error in the Bible. In the word that is the flawless word of God, how could there possibly be? And you know, I can't fully explain except to say this. God made sure that we would fully understand because he gives us the complete and total context just after this. In other words, we can know down in verse 39 that it is 22,000 People numbered. We know this, absolutely. That's the right number. How do we know that? You gotta continue on. Verse 40. Then the Lord said to Moses, number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old and upward. So 22,000 in Levi, okay, of all the people, and now number the firstborn of Israel a month old and, up and upward. You shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. So Moses numbered all the firstborn among the sons of Israel just as the Lord had commanded him, so a census, and all the firstborn males by the number of names from a month old and upward, for their numbered men were 22,273. So 22,000 total Levites, a month old and upward, 22,273 of the firstborn of all the rest of the tribes of Israel. Watch this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites and the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord for the ransom of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites. You shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. And give the money, the ransom of those who are in excess among them to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the ransom money from those who were in excess. 
beyond those ransomed by the Levites from the firstborn of the sons of Israel. He took the money in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, 1,365. And then Moses gave the ransom money to Aaron and to his sons at the command of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. What is going on here? We could call this scene, this census, Levitical mediation. Ever since Exodus 32, ever since the golden calf incident and the absolute failure of Israel to be the priestly people that God called them to be, he turned to the Levites and he said, you will now serve as my priests. You now belong to me. It was all Israel and all of the firstborn of Israel would belong to the Lord. But now he says, I'm gonna make a trade-off. I have now a people who are mediating for the rest of the people. The Levites are the mediation. Therefore, all of the Levites, all the male Levites, a month old and upward, number 22,000, they replace the firstborn of Israel. So now instead of you bringing me your firstborn and, and paying that five shekel redemption price, there's a Levite for a person of Israel, a Levite for a firstborn, a Levite for a firstborn all the way throughout Israel. They now are the mediation. But we were 273 short. So God said for the 273, they can just pay the five shekel price. And so God takes care of that. But Levi now belongs to God in place of the firstborn of the rest of Israel as the priestly tribe. And that's so cool. The way God functions, the way he works. They are guards on the outside of the tabernacle and they are now also replacements for the firstborn of Israel. They stand between a Levite for a firstborn son. Commentarian Timothy Ashley writes, thus God's holiness is insulated from the people and the people are insulated by the Levites from the fatal holiness of God. I like that phrase, the fatal holiness of God. We don't have any concept of that. I'm sorry, but, but in the church today, people are so casual. We've gotten so relaxed with God that a phrase like the fatal holiness of God sounds a little over the top, but not if your name was Uzzah. Not if you happen to be someone who tried to breach the tabernacle. This is serious business. The holiness of God is absolutely fatal to someone without a mediator. Praise God, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the insulation between us and God. Jesus is the one through whom we go to reach God. He is the mediator. Now replacing the entire priesthood of Levi, it's now Jesus. So 273, again, more firstborn sons in Israel than in Levi, and to square the books, God said, just pay the five shekel for those 273. But either way, get this, it's a beautiful picture of redemption. We see it again right here in the book of Numbers, hashtag in the wilderness, it's exchange for redemption. I am exchanging your firstborn for the Levites. They now belong to me. Redemption. 
Speaking of both ministry and mediation, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless of Christ. What no Levite could do, Jesus came and did. So chapter 3, that's what the numbering's all about, mediation. Number them so that they can be they can be like your firstborn. They now mediate between you and me. Put them around the tabernacle so that they can insulate the rest of Israel from the fatal holiness of God. And they are to keep watch and keep guard lest any small child should wander into the courtyard or any teenager just curious what's on the other side of that fence. They keep watch to keep the people safe from the fatal holiness of God. Chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohat from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their father's households. From 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. So here we go. The priestly service began at age 30. In fact, it was a, it was a short run. It's kind of like being a quarterback in the NFL. You got about 20 years. Actually, that's probably more than most quarterbacks have, unless your name's Tom Brady. 30 to 50 was the length of time. You didn't start the ministry, the priestly Levitical ministry, till you were 30. And then when you were 50, you're in retirement. All done. Understand, that phrase is repeated in verse 23, verse 30, and verse 35, speaking to all the factions of the Levites, that they begin at 30 and they retire at 50. And I love the wisdom in this. If you're under the age of 30, please take no offense, but understand this. There's no substitute for mileage, and there is wisdom with age and maturity. And the Lord recognizes this, that we learn as we go, and we truly are seasoned by life. So they were not to even begin their priestly ministry until the age of 30. Prior to that, there could be an amount of preparation. In fact, we'll see that. But at age 30 is when they start the work. David, 2 Samuel 5, 4. David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 40 years. He was anointed when he was a young man, somewhere between 17 and 20. He was anointed for the throne, but he didn't rise to the throne for an entire decade, a tough decade, being chased by Saul the whole time. But at age 30, now he's ready. Now David becomes king. Paul put it this way, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. And that's, that's an important word in the church. Hey, listen, just because we need something to be done doesn't mean that we automatically assign it to somebody. There has to be some sense of wisdom, some sense of maturity there. Even for the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, remember they had to be men filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So age 30 was important. But note this, it was 30 to 50. And so even in retirement, the priests had a role. Over in Numbers chapter 8, verses 24 through 26, we're told that the older retired priests, so you hit 50, <laughs> I'd be retired six years. But you hit 50 and you can retire, and yet you're not done. Because what the Bible describes there is the older Levites Looks like what they did was they became mentors. 
and teachers of the young Levites who were between the ages of 25 and 30. See, at the age of 25, they could begin training. So they'd have five years of training, and the 50-plus Levites were most likely part of that training and that development of the younger. The older, training up the younger. The older, training the younger. We need more of that in the church. Older brothers and sisters, it is our job to train our younger brothers and sisters, to raise them up, whether that's teaching in Sunday school and in, a, in a children's ministry class or working with student ministry. Just because you're retired, you're not done. We still have a role. We still have a call. And that is to pour our lives, our experience, our wisdom, such as it is, into the lives of those who are younger who haven't experienced those things yet. Titus chapter 2, verse 2 says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Older men, older women, this is how you are to be. By the way, older men and older women, see, we have a choice as we age. You can age well, by the spirit of the living God, knowing and staying with his word, or it can age into a cranky old coot. And the difference is Jesus. When I see older brothers and sisters with that twinkle in their eye and the love and compassion and grace of God in their lives, that's because Jesus is there. When I see a cranky old coot, well, we'll just let that one lie. Older men are to be temperate. Older women are likewise to be reverent. Why? So that they can teach the younger men and the younger women. But 30 was the official age to begin this priestly ministry. Note this also, Luke 3.23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years old, right on schedule. Verse 4, this is the work of the descendants of Kohat, in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. Now he gets more specific. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in. They shall take down the veil. That's that veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. They'll take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering and the continual bread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin and they shall insert its poles. And then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light along with its lamps, with its snuffers, with its trays, with all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it and all its utensils in a covering of porpoise skin and shall put in or put it on the carrying bars. And then over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and they shall cover it, covering it with a covering of porpoise skin and shall insert its poles. And they shall take all the utensils of service with which they serve in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth and cover them with a covering of porpoise skin and they shall put them on the carrying bars. Now, now just hold fast there for just a second. This is what the Aaronite priests were to do before they headed out. So we're, remember, we're preparing for the wilderness. 
They're going to be in the wilderness, God knows, 38 years. So they got to be ready to handle all of this, and this is how it's going to work. What's interesting is when you, when you look at this, that the table of showbread, for all these coverings that they have, the table of showbread is the only furnishing that is covered with a scarlet cloth. That's interesting to me. Cover it first with a scarlet cloth, and then they put that tough, leathery porpoise skin. It, it may also be like a dugong skin. We talked about this back in Exodus. The dugong is a sea mammal that looks somewhat of the dolphin family, maybe a little bit larger than, than a typical dolphin. has kind of a snub nose. And, and these things, would they swim all throughout the Red Sea, even today. You can look that up on, it's interesting, look it up on YouTube. Look up dugong, D-U-G-O-N-G, and you can see what they look like. That's probably what we're talking about here. Tough, thick, leathery skin, great for covering and preserving and protecting things. And so you have the table of showbread, and they would put this scarlet cloth over it, and then the tough, leathery skin over it of the porpoise or dugong. They also call that a sea cow. I like that. Why? Why is this the only one, the table of showbread is the only one that has this scarlet material over the top of it? I find it fascinating because the table represents the bread of heaven who is Jesus. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. The bread of heaven, and they cover it with a scarlet cloth, which reminds us of the scarlet blood, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. The bread of heaven covered with the red cloth that will one day be the blood of Christ at Calvary. Interesting. But if you continue on, you might note something else. They're all covered with the blue cloth, and the blue tends to be a picture of heaven or heavenly things. But note when you go further down, verse 13 says, they shall take away the ashes from the altar. This is the bronze altar that's out in the courtyard and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall also put in it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, the utensils of the altar. They shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. But before they put the porpoise skin, they put purple cloth. This is the only furnishing over which they put that royal purple cloth. Now you read through this and you might think, well, that's weird. I would think it'd be the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, you want to go royal and holy. That's the most holy piece in the whole thing. Cover that with purple cloth. Nope. That was covered with the veil. Which, by the way, is interesting because the veil, the Hebrew writer tells us, is his flesh. Covering over the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, but not the purple cloth. You might even think, well, the lampstand, perhaps, or, or the altar of incense. Put a purple cloth over that. No, it's the altar of sacrifice, the big bronze altar. Why the purple cloth on the bronze altar of sacrifice? Mark 15, verse 17, they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, they put his garments on him, and they laid him out to crucify him. So the only article with a purple cloth was the altar of sacrifice. Listen, brothers and sisters, any time... We start to get worn out in our ministry. 
in our lives of service. Anytime we start to forget our ministry calling, you look at the cross. And you remember, Jesus is the example of service, that ministry is not self-serving. It is self-sacrificial. That's our calling. Well, verse 15, how are we doing? Oh, verse 15, quick, here we go. <laughs> when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is, set, when the camp is to set out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So the Kohathites, now they come in, everything's covered up, and now they can carry these things out, the Kohathites. And verse 16, the responsibility of Eletzar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light and the fragrant incense and the continual grain offering and the anointing oil, the responsibility of all the tabernacle and all that is in it and the sanctuary and its furnishings. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons go in and assign each to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. Now tune in for me or, or for, for this for just a moment here. The Kohathites, their job was a carrying ministry. They went in and they carried the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altars and the utensils. They were the ones who carried these furnishings, a carrying ministry. But get this, understand this. They were not to lay eyes on what they laid hands on. So as they carried, they were not to even be able to see what they were carrying. It was covered over. How like our ministry. Incredibly important ministry. What they were doing mattered, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't know at the time. We have a two-word ministry nowadays that is very similar to that. We call it youth ministry, student ministry. Why? Because you rarely see the fruit. You can't see what you're carrying. You don't know what this is going to produce. I read once years ago that the most effective ministry among teenagers is measured 10 or 20 years later. That's when you know if it was effective. And not immediately after because <laughs> a lot of times that doesn't look so good. 10 years down the line, 20, 30 years later, you see who's following Jesus. So much ministry, not just youth ministry, so much ministry is ministry that as we do it, we can't see it. As we carry it out, we can't see what's going on. Jesus said, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves. The slave doesn't know what his master's doing but I've called you friends. For all the things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Well, Jesus, if you've made known to us all the things, then how come I can't know the impact of my ministry? How come I can't see who it's affecting? We often don't. We're just called to carry it out. And by the way, Jesus went on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. But that doesn't mean we'll see the fruit. Those who plant, those who tend, those who carry, 
The produce of our labor is the one thing we often don't see ourselves. Carry out your ministry and let Jesus worry about the things yet to be seen. Verse 21, then the duties of the Gershonites. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. You've got the carrying ministry of the Kohathites. And take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their families and their households from 30 years old and upward from to 50 years old. You shall number them. All who, are, who enter to perform the service of the work of the tent of meeting. And this is the service of the family of the Gershonites in serving and in carrying. They shall carry, note this, the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of porpoise skin that's on top of it and the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the doorway of the gate of the court which is around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords and all their equipment for their service and all that is to be done they shall perform so the gershonites these guys are blinds.com all right they they take care of all the the screens and the, the walls of the tabernacle and the hangings of the tabernacle, that's their job. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites, verse 27, in all their loads and all their work shall be performed at the command of Aaron and his sons, and you shall assign to them as a duty all their loads. And this is the service of the family of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting, and their duty shall be under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron the priest. So remember, Eleazar is over the Kohathites and the tabernacle itself, now, Ithamar, he's going to be over the Gershonites and, I'll tell you ahead, he'll be over the Merorites too. So he's over the two ites there and the other one's over the Kohathites. So the Gershonites, you've got the carrying ministry of the Kohathites and now the Gershonites took care of the coverings. So they have a covering ministry, a covering ministry. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Covering ministry is so important, so vital among us in the church. There's another name for it. We would call it the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, that's not a flashy ministry. That's not one that people see right up front. That's just one person loving another, restoring another, reconciling another, seeing two brothers, two sisters at odds and bringing reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's a covering ministry where we seek to cover one another with love, kind of like the Gershonites. So a carrying ministry of the Kohathites, a covering ministry of the Gershonites, and then verse 29, we come to the Merorites. As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families, by their father's household, from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, everyone who enters the service, to do the work of the tent of meeting. This is their duty, verse 31. For all their service in the tent of meeting, this is exciting, watch this, the boards. So these guys serve on the board. <laughs> the boards and of the tabernacle and its bars and its pillars and its sockets. yip de doo 
and the pillars around the court and their sockets and their pegs and their cords with all their equipment and with all their service. And you shall assign each man by name the items he is to carry. This is the service of the family of families of the sons of Merari according to all the service in the tent of meeting under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Wow, how exciting. The Merarites were in charge of the framework of the tabernacle. So not the screens and the walls and the hangings, but the things that held them up. Note that without them, there'd be nothing to hold up the screens and the hangings and the, and the walls. So incredibly vital, but kind of menial, right? Hey, these are the guys who took care of what would hold it all together in the wilderness. We might say it's a constructive ministry carrying ministry, a covering ministry, and now a constructive ministry and a constructive ministry, it's that which builds up and that which supports and that which reinforces. And Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. What for? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See how vital it is, a constructive ministry, one that builds up the body. And all these put together just by way of application, there are so many ways and there are so many means to carry out and to cover and to construct as servants in the household of God. And these Levites, they all had their jobs. They all had their roles. Just as Paul says of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. Note this, take this personally. This is for you directly. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You know what that means? That means that nobody in the church is without a ministry. Nobody in the church is without a calling. The question is not whether or not you have a calling. It's have you heard your calling? Do you know your calling? Have you embraced it? Verse 34. Hold on, here we go. So Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their father's household from 30 years old upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work in the tent of meeting and their numbered men by their families were 2,750. That's the Kohathites. These are the numbered men of the Kohathite families, everyone who was serving in the tent of meeting whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And then the numbered men of the sons of Gershon, verse 40, tells us 2,630 Gershonites. That's their number, 30 years old and upward. And then the number of the Merarites, down in verse 44, 3,200. These are the numbered men of the families of the sons of Merari. So these three clans within Levi, not the Aaronites, but just the Levites, these three clans are all numbered 2750, 2630, 3200. Down in verse 48, note this, their numbered men were 8,580. Note this, 
to care for and to keep watch around the tabernacle. 8,580 people took care of God's holy tabernacle. If not for their work, Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar couldn't do theirs. The Aaronites needed the Levites. And the people of Israel needed their priestly tribe desperately. All these are the ones who are called on to be counted. Called on to be counted, to carry, and to cover, and to construct as we've seen, and to guard the tabernacle in the wilderness on the journey as insulation, mediation between God and the people. So let's put this all together. In Christ Jesus, we all have a calling, every one of us. We are called to be counted, called to be counted on. And when one person is not doing their priestly duty, something's missing in the church. When one person is not following or living a life worthy of the calling to which they've been called, something's missing in the church. The church is not as effective as we could be. Even if it's one socket out of place, one hanging that's missing, one piece of furnishing that was not put back in at the right time, we're lacking when we are not all functioning on our or by our calling. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 again says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So in your calling, you start by considering him. He was faithful to him who appointed him, Jesus was, even as Moses also was in all his house. That's the example. Jesus is the picture of our calling. Was Jesus faithful? Yes. Was Jesus on schedule? Yes. Did Jesus carry out his ministry? Yes. Did Jesus cover with love? Absolutely. Did Jesus construct his church, build his church as he promised he would? You better believe it. And does Jesus keep watch over us? Yes, he does. He's our example. That's what we are to live like. You have a calling. Now listen, it's so important. Calling keeps you on track. Fellow ministers of the gospel, if you don't know your calling, you better be asking God, what is my calling? Because a knowledge of your calling keeps you on track in or out of the church. No matter what people say or what people do or how you're treated, Remembering, knowing, a knowledge of your calling keeps you on track for the Lord. When I forget my calling, I become all self-focused and self-centered and self-pitying. When I lose sight of my calling, I get off track. I become ineffective, like Nadab and Abahu, who missed their calling, and so on ordination day, they just made it all about themselves. Drink up. Lighting strange fire, doing their thing, looking for a little glory. And they missed their call and burned out. Have you heard? Do you understand? Do you know your calling? Now, I know even asking that, there are some right now who would go, I don't know. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you just feel like you've blown it. Maybe you're like Thomas. You just can't believe it until you see it. (laughs) Maybe you're like Saul 
in that you have been kicking against the call of God on your life. But listen, verse 49 ends, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were numbered, everyone by his serving or carrying. Thus, these were the numbered men, his numbered men, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Your calling, your calling, you might want to write this down, is ministry. You are called to ministry, but... And I'm going to end on this. Your calling is not your identity. Your calling is your ministry. It is not your identity. What do you mean? You know what? I'm not Pastor Rick. That's not my identity. I don't go home and expect my children to call me pastor. In fact, my kids think it's a little weird. They really do, and it's fun. It's the place I walk in, the door closes, and with my family, I'm just dad. I'm Rick. But you know, that's not even really my identity. My identity is I'm a son of the living God. That's my identity. My wife, my darling wife, Cheryl, her identity is not Rick's wife. It's not the pastor's wife. Her identity is daughter of the living God. That's, that's your identity, sons and daughters. And you need to hear this because it's a two-part life-changing simplicity here. First, you hear the love call of the father. You're my son. You're my daughter. That's your identity. We are children of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's who we are in Christ. In fact, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He knew you ahead of time. He knew who his sons would be, who his daughters would be. And because he foreknew you, knowing you would choose him, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And our identity then comes into full bloom as it were. And then we hear the call to ministry. My identity is in him. My calling is to ministry. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. So clearly tells us, these whom he predestined, he also called. If you are foreknown by God and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, guess what? You're called. You are called to ministry in the church. And by the way, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And then... Knowing my identity is a son and my calling is to ministry, then I can answer the call with absolute freedom. Because then I understand something, and this is the last point. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we began a while ago. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, that's the deal. That's the power. Far beyond anything you can ask or imagine. That's his power at work in you. Therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And Father, as we consider these things, I would have covered a lot of ground tonight, Lord. But my prayer is that our fellowship 
that each of us here, Lord, would begin to recognize our calling. But not until we've recognized our identity. Father, our identity, sons and daughters of the living God, by the love call of the Father, through the proven love of Jesus. Oh, Lord, that's who we are. And Father, I'm so thankful to know and to proclaim tonight that there's not one thing we can do to make ourselves more sons or more daughters of yours than to receive sonship, daughtership from you. And that's who we are. The Father, far too many sit back and think, I don't have a calling, I don't have a purpose, I don't have a ministry. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would begin to pour out by your Spirit calling. For as your Word tells us, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. I pray everyone sitting here tonight, everyone tuning in at home, everyone who will hear this teaching would begin to recognize and if they don't recognize, ask to know and understand our specific ministry calling. And it may be pegs and boards, and it may be hangings, and it may be carrying the furnishings. And for some, it may even be, Lord, serving in some other way in the tabernacle. It doesn't matter. But it does matter, Lord, that we know that we're called. Would you call your people? And I pray, Father, that once beloved and called, that your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In Jesus' name, amen.